0: This is the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work with students to build problem solving, critical thinking, collaborating, and using of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. And today we are continuing our conversation about how we work with curriculum, uh, using the highly effective teaching model, as well as some other models that our teachers have used on campus to help our students master the standards that we're trying to cover. And today I've got uh, Scott Hussey with us. He is our high school humanities instructor. He does, he's taught ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. Um, and every year they kind of mix up which grade levels he might be teaching. So I'm not exactly sure which ones he's going to be teaching next year. But um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And so we're going to just jump right in with this discussion today of looking at how you develop curriculum. Um, how do? You, what are you thinking about when you're thinking about the next group that's coming along the way? We're we're recording this, and as we're entering summer, so I know you want to take a break, but yet you're already kind of thinking about what am I wanting to do for next year? So, what are ways that you look at developing and, and building that curriculum? So, uh, when I was first hired by uh, Becca Wolfenbarger, one of the
1: major reasons why she sought me out and asked me an interview is because my background is in American Studies, so I'm not I'm not educated as a like an English um, grammarian or literature, and I also have a lot. I, I have a lot of classes. I take a lot of graduate level classes in history, right? And so that first year, they needed someone who could teach both English and history, right? And I was certified to teach um, both in Florida. In Tennessee, I'm only certified to teach English, um, and the re- there's one simple reason for that. I wanted to get a job. Right. And in order to get a job as a history teacher, it really helps if you're also coach. Right, and, right. And not just cross-country coach. That's not a real coach, right? <laughs> more like football or, right? Especially and, in East Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I didn't have coach as my main title, so I went for English because they always need more men in an English department anyways. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I could teach. So I, I started immediately as an integrated humanities teacher, right? And that's one of the reasons why we call our social studies and English classes the humanities department and not have these two separate departments is we really see them integrated, right? Which then means from curriculum standing, from a curriculum design standpoint, when I go to design a curriculum, the very first thing I actually need to know is not what I'm going to do in English. I need to know, now that we've grown, what is um the social studies teacher going to do right because they're a little bit more locked in from a standards standpoint right Um, my standards i I can really kind of teach my standards at at different time periods i don't have to like go in some sort of sequential order i can go in a thematic order right Uh, and so i don't have to start necessarily with my standards i have to start with what are they doing and once i know what the social studies teacher is doing um, then I can start picking my text, right? Then I can start designing complementary material. Say, okay, this is what this is the idea that you're trying to get across in social studies. So how do I complement that idea? And then how? What do I need to do as far as like teaching my students, you know, basics of writing or grammar or whatnot? I can fit that in. Um, and, it, of course, you scaffold. It builds on top of each other, right? But the, the the major idea is, like, how do we make sure that the ideas that they're learning in both classes are connected? Because I can really pick any sort of literature or non uh, fiction text, right, informative text to match. Right. But um, they cannot, right? right. I I, they, I can't say, like, hey, I, I'm doing a, a quarter on conflict or rhetorical analysis what do you got right like how are you going to compliment
0: me um, it really just works the other way right and I know early on Scott and I were both teachers and uh, in, in what in the process of building the high school and, and we were even middle school for a while although I think we'd both agree that that wasn't a, yeah that was temporary wasn't our, <laughs> wasn't our final goal very, very short uh, seventh grade too that's right, right? it was exciting <laughs> um, but we did a lot of, of that kind of collaborating, even in that with the sciences, and, and you were always great of helping find text and helping build in what we were doing in science and, and integrating that into what you were working on in English. And, and some of those papers, I remember when, you, when we were talking to ninth graders about writing uh, a scientific paper that was gonna be 10, 12 pages in length, uh, you gotta get that wide-eyed, glassy look. And, and if I would have been on my own on that, it would have been a a bigger struggle but i know that you were able to partner with me and say let's let's incorporate what they're already doing in english let's make this happen Um, and that was a great uh way for us to integrate that content we had two really
1: fun units i mean i the the pistol creek study right and and trying to do that longitudinal study over multiple i think we went like four years with it yeah yeah um even when when um Dr. Camacho when Anki took over we kept that going and then for a while when you were using the next-gen standards um, to teach scientific evolution and students were wanting to bring non-scientific evolution conversation into your classroom and you were like no that's not that's (laughs) not the standard right let's that's and and we were also a new school and right Right. and we were establishing ourselves, and I said well that is what I do in my class. So we were able to bring that in and then to go down to um, Dayton, Tennessee and see the play for um, the Scopes trial, right? And, and I think that the fact that we were actually integrating in science as well, right,
0: really helped me understand as an educator what we can do here. Yeah. And we've talked about that some on the podcast. Of uh, Our definition of STEM is that integration of all of these concepts, all these ideas, to try to make it look more like the real world. And, and exactly what you were talking about there, if we had students that were working on evolution standards in science while they were doing historical text of, of what was going on in Dayton, Tennessee, with the Scopes Monkey Trial, and then looking at other readings and other writings and, and, and other discussions of that and allowing kids to really put that out there on the table. We, we've also discussed on the podcast that our rooms being set up in a way that, that helps people understand that that what I have to bring to the classroom is valuable but what you have to bring to the classroom is is also valuable and, and we have to develop a relationship in a way that I can hear what you're having to say and you can hear what I'm having to say and it's not necessarily an argument, it's a discussion of ideas mm-hmm. and teaching our kids that we want to have a discussion of ideas. We know that that's what hopefully will make them successful in the real world, although you don't always see that with adults of willing to come in and have a discussion of ideas.
1: Yeah, I think our media is really good at showing us the antagonistic parts, right? right? Like, no, no, nothing sells better than a good fight, right? Absolutely. And it, it's really boring to watch two adults who may not hold the same points of view have a fun conversation. There's probably a reason why this is not... <laughs> A videoed right now, right? right. <laughs> right? That is audio. Because um, the video of this is is not exactly exciting, but the fact that we can talk and we do have some diversity of thought, right? And then when you increase it to a classroom of, of 20 um, young students, right? Well, not young students, actually, young adults um, who are coming into understanding their own ideas about life, right? So they're taking whatever... Um, their parents have given them their culture has given them possibly their religious institutions have given them um and they're trying to come to grips well where do i fit in this and then to have to do it around a bunch of other teenagers at the same time right and i think it does it allows for respectful
0: conversation to be learned Right. right. And I think in the middle of that, one of the things I see you teaching our kids is, is the, the power of going out and finding sources and, and making sure that you're giving credit to those sources, but saying these are not just ideas, hopefully, that you're coming up with out of the air, uh, <laughs> but it's, it, you're, you've got evidence to back up whatever you're saying and making sure that you're picking evidence that has value and not just somebody's opinion out there that did create this out of thin air. Um, and I think you do a great job of that. And one of the things I think that has helped in that discussion element is uh, the Harkness discussion. And, and you were the, the instructor at our school that really brought this idea to us to say, hey, I think this Harkness idea would be a good thing for CBA and a good fit for CBA. Can you kind of walk through that? Because I don't know, there may be people listening that have never heard of that. And there may be people listening that have heard that we do Harkness discussions, but really don't understand what those are. Sure. So kind of, I guess start as, as as much of a beginning as you want of saying this is where I come across this and then this is how we got to where we are.
1: So I remember it exactly. And you were with me. Uh, we went to the uh, Project-Based Learning Conference, the PBL Conference down in Atlanta or just north of Atlanta. And um, at that conference, there were a lot of um, parochial schools, right? And I think there was mostly Christian schools out of Texas, Right. Um, and one of the things that happened, and Becca Wolfenbarger and I were in the the same session. Um, there was a conversation about how do you teach "quote unquote" controversial texts, and one of the instructors said, "Oh, at a small independent school." And right at the time, we were learning how to be a small independent Absolutely. school because a lot of us came from public education, yeah. right? And and we're public educated ourselves right? right right and so we were new to this world of um independent schools or private schools um particularly at the high school level absolutely right? and um what the i think it was like a, a dallas christian school or whatever the woman there um and i, I remember she she had like texas accent texas hair <laughs> blonde big blonde um she was she was very well dressed and she's oh we just use harkness and and she said it, so matter-of-factly and and yeah and i nodded my head i didn't i <laughs> and right we were doing something else so i'm like okay um and then i went back here i was like can you tell me a little bit more she goes yeah it's a conversation and I, and I researched it from there and becca and i talked about it um and i thought well this is absolutely perfect for our class right yeah um we were it, well at the very beginning we said no textbooks We're eschewing chalk and talk, right? We're not putting the teacher as the sage on the stage was one of the expressions we threw around a lot. Um, It's student-centered learning was another thing that we've talked a lot about. And in my mind, what I remembered was uh, graduate school. Because in the humanities and graduate school, one of the things you do is you sit, there's smaller classes, right? And you're supposed to read like a massive... Book a week, right? And yeah, you do. Like you go through these, especially in history classes, you go through like 500 pages oh, a, my goodness. A, of some historical text a week, and and you have to come to class prepared um, because you're 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 sitting across from equal intellectuals, right? right? And you have to have to say something about this text. And so it reminded me of that. Um, but it had. A secondary education aspect to it rather than graduate school aspect and so I looked at um, Phillips Exeter which is where the uh, pedagogy comes from it's a private school up in New Hampshire um, and I went to the training there and it was one of the best if not the best single education trainings I had ever been to right and so basically what Harkness Stems from is there was a student in the early 20th century, um, and he he never enjoyed classes in which you had to be quick to answer questions. Okay. Right. And it's that old. The professor was actually the teacher was actually on a stage type times. <laughs> right. right. Legitimately. Le- on legitimately a stage. elevated. Right? right. And you know the smartest students sit in the front of the class and they raise their hand and they're called upon, and he um, he never felt that he fit into that place. Um, His name was Harkness. And um, what he did um, is he went on to become the number two man for Standard Oil. Oh, wow. So he had tons of money. Yeah. And he went to Phillips' Exeter and he said, I would like for you to find another way to teach so that students who are not um quick on the draw. We're not the first hands-up, pick-me type students, but are slow um, processors, yeah. right, can find a place to share their ideas in a classroom. And from that, they came up with the Harkness Oval, which if you go into my classroom, if you go into any Harkness classroom, you're going to find a boardroom-like table, like the one we're at here in yeah. CBA's boardroom, only it's going to be oval-shaped. And the reason for the oval shape is that way um, no one hides and there's no head of the table. Right. Uh, and so um, the students come to the table prepared with whatever text you assigned. Um, in an English classroom, it's you know something to read most likely. It, it could be a film or whatnot. Uh, and they have to be able to state what they saw in that text. And my job as an educator is not to actually say you're correct, you're incorrect, right? Um, it's more like watching say a basketball coach or a soccer coach right or any kind of um non-academic teacher yeah right who allows the, the the learners to perform your job is to allow the performers to i mean the students to perform but also to kind of rein them in to like compliment to do soft corrections not necessarily you're wrong but that's a good point but maybe we try to find evidence from the text to prove that point right yeah um so statements like that and it all of a sudden as soon as i employed it it shifted the classroom immediately yeah i and i immediately saw how it um students and i mean i had to play around with also grading of it for a while i did group grades Right? And my job would be to mark and to really um, pay attention to what's going on and write down all the comments so, like this student used another student's by name uh, first name, right okay. or they referenced another idea from earlier or they were adding on to an idea um, from a previous conversation or they were pulling an idea from another class right uh, And that's actually when I'm in a Harkness conversation, a student says, we learn that in humanities, we, we, right? We learn that in human geography. We learn that, oh, we're talking about that in science. Yeah. Right. That's when the conversation's really working, right? And that's when integration's working, and that's when student-centered learning's working, right? When they're able to retrieve that information to discuss whatever novel I picked Right, a curated would probably be a better word um, for our class. That, yeah. that the ideas are starting to come together and they're making sense to the student not in like I need to know this because it's going to be on test but like oh this idea works with that idea. Um, and so Harkness uh, immediately allowed it and um, I've been an acolyte ever since. Uh, we were able to send Josh to one of the trainings and um, the history in the English um, trainings are together, right? Okay. And so everyone in the room, when you go to the trainings, are e- is either an English teacher or a history teacher, most likely. And they teach other things at Phillips Exeter. They have a math style of Harkness. Um, we've looked into it, um, but the IM track that Dr. Bruce and Miss Kennedy have, and the math department have us on um, seems to work much better than that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, and it just... I have found for our classes, for our students, uh, even our quiet shy students right um, they do get out of it something out of it yeah.
0: right. This has been part one. Of interview with Scott Hussey as he discusses how humanities integrates with each other, the English and history departments, as well as how they integrate with other content areas. He is also discussing some of how the Harkness discussions came about in CBA, and he was an instrumental part of bringing that to CBA and using it in our model. Next week, you can join us for part two as we continue this interview talking about Harkness, talking about brain-based research, talking about our curriculum. This is The Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast where every day we work to help students learn to problem solve, collaborate, critically think, and use our lifelong guidelines and life skills. If you'd like to know more about us, you can find us on our website, www.claytonbradleyacademy.org. You can also find us on many social media platforms at uh, CBA STEM or Clayton Bradley Academy STEM. We would love to see you come to campus. You can schedule a tour, you can schedule a visit. See the magic that actually happens in our classrooms every day. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a wonderful day.